available to you. We ordered 20 more, and we can always order more. Uh, that, is, that is no big deal. So Genesis 22, your reading today is 21 and 22. If you're complaining about the reading, tomorrow's one chapter. It is also the longest chapter in Genesis. So um, I think we spent like four weeks on that chapter. But nevertheless, uh, we are in Genesis 22. Story I trust that we are familiar with. Um, we'll, we'll focus on the first 19 verses. And we actually looked at this fairly recently. By that, I mean it was probably four months ago. But um, So I don't want to go over everything we did before, but we'll, we'll look at some things. And a lot of it may... Um, sound familiar. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 19. And these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will, shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. They came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes, and looked, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mouth of the Lord it shall be um, provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, I, I trust by now we are somewhat familiar with the story, whether just from growing up with it or... Um, more recently looking at. I believe our second Easter here, we, we actually looked at this story. I'll grab my clicker here. Um, one of the things about this passage that is so striking is, is it seems out of character. You read the entire Bible, and it's very clear you don't hurt babies. I mean, we just watched a video the, that, that shows that we, there's a tenderness and a care for the most innocent. And there's no one more innocent than a, uh, um, uh, a baby born prematurely, right? Um, well, here you have um, God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son. But then again, if you keep reading the Bible, God condemns the nations for doing something like that. In fact, the place that Jesus references as a type of hell, Gehenna. Gehenna's, the genesis of Gehenna is the place where uh, children were sacrificed 
to the pagan gods. It eventually became an, a uh, garbage dump to where it was burning continually. And so Jesus uses that as a picture for hell, Gehenna. And so usually when we translate hell in the New Testament, the Greek word is Gehenna. So God is clearly against this, and yet he tells Abraham to, to do this. I want to show something that stuck out. I don't know if we, we, we pointed this out previously. And it works that you're reading this chapter 21 and 22. Chapter 21 is about the expulsion of Hagar, right? And, and you remember from what you, what you read today that um, Hagar goes out and she, she's given a bottle of water and is sent into the wilderness. And the presumption is that she will die. She and Ishmael will just die out in the wilderness. And it's a really tragic story that Abraham is willing and is told by God to sacrifice his son. Right? So, so I want you to see the parallels here. In both stories, God commands Abraham to take actions that will lead to the death of his son. Ishmael in chapter 21, Isaac in chapter 22. In 21, Hagar fears that she will lose her son. In chapter 22, Abraham fears that he will lose his son. But it's still the same story, essentially. In chapter 21, you remember that Hagar puts Ishmael under a bush. In chapter 22, and, and, and there God intervenes by providing water, right, a spring. In chapter 22, a God intervenes by putting a ram in a thicket. So the parallels, I think, are very, very on point. And, and if, if you read the Bible often, there is a cosmic justice that takes place. This goes beyond our purposes, but you remember the first time that uh, Sarah expels Hagar? You remember that she, she is going from the promised land to Egypt? So what you have then is uh, a, a Jew who has enslaved an Egyptian, who then is expelled, who leaves with her son to go to Egypt. Right? And, and uh, Hagar means immigrant. And so the word that is used is that Sarah oppressed Hagar. Well, centuries later, in fact, it, when that happens, the chapter before God warns, your, your descendants are going to be oppressed. And then the next story is how Abraham and Sarah oppressed the immigrant, Hagar, who is a slave who uh, flees to Egypt. Well, in Exodus is the story of an Egyptian, Pharaoh, oppressing Jewish slaves who escape to Canaan. Right? So, so, the, so the Bible does this quite, quite a bit. And, and I think we are to see the, the connection between uh, these stories. Furthermore, note that um, later in the Passover, the story is the death of a firstborn is prevented by the sacrifice of a lamb. Right? That is the Passover. So when Pharaoh and the Egyptians don't offer the lamb, their son, firstborn son is taken. But those who do what Abraham did and that took the lamb as a substitute, the firstborn is spared. So this, this imagery of 21 to 22 is all over the Bible. Um, I also showed this uh, whenever we looked at this. So I don't want to spend forever. The chiasm of, of chapter uh, 22, it, we're, we're, it's going to be a pink day. You do with that whatever you want. It's just the color that PowerPoint wanted me to have, and I am too lazy to mess with that. Okay, So we're going with pink. There you go, ladies. You, you win. But, but I want you to notice that the chiasm, right? So what you get at the beginning is repeated at the end. So you start with the word of Elohim. In verses 1 and 2, you end with the word of Yahweh. 
And so you see the phrases, here I am, your only son, uh, offer him as a burnt offering. Again, here I am, your only son, offered it as a burnt offering. Same parallels. But then you also see uh, between that are various actions. Uh, he took, he cut, uh, God told him, he set the knife, all that repeated later in verses 9 and 10. And the way chiasm works is the, the part that's in the middle is the part that is most emphasized. Okay? And here it's labeled dialogue. I'm stealing this from a commentator, uh, so none of this is original with me. So look at verse 7 and 8. This is where you're going to find the real emphasis of chapter 22. Isaac said to his father, My father, he said, Here I am, your, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's the center of the story, which means whatever it is we do with the story, we have to see that that is its center. The, the meaning of the text is found right there. Where is the lamb? God will provide the lamb. So, so in all the confusion about why would God ask Abraham to do this, and we've, we've looked at that a little bit with the story of, of Ishmael and Hagar and all that, um, we have to answer that question. By the way, this is the only dialogue between Abraham and Isaac recorded in the Bible. And it has to do with where is the lamb? God will provide it. Well, with that, uh, uh, the test is given there in, in verse 1, uh, followed by some significant language in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. So, so you see repetition is emphasis. Your son, your only son, whom you love, right? And so there is, is to emphasize, um, Isaac is mentioned three times. Your son, your only son, Isaac. The one you love, Isaac, right? So we really could say four. Um, and the word only there could be translated unique because, of course, Isaac isn't Abraham's only son. Ishmael is wandering in the desert. But the word really carries with it unique or special um, and, and that, of course, does describe Isaac as the, the promised son uh, of God given to Abraham. So God is commanding Abraham to kill the son of promise, to shed innocent blood. And that is an appalling request, but it calls into question the promises that God has given Abraham. That you will have a son through Sarah. He will be the son of promise, and through him, you know, the nations will be blessed. Well, now God is, is at risk of taking that away from him. So, so immediately we, we see that this is, this is quite a striking uh, passage. God never tells Abraham why. Um, we're told in verse 1 that God is testing Abraham, but Abraham doesn't know that. Just one day he wakes up and says, oh, by the way, I want you to travel really far away, and I want you to kill your boy. Right? I mean, this is, this is a striking passage. And we, we see in verse 2 that he is told to make a burnt offering. This is only the second reference to a burnt offering. Noah was the first to offer this. Um, Noah gets off the ark, and he builds an altar, and he offers a burnt offering, which is what the, we talked about this last week, the clean animals were, were for that. Um, burnt offerings involve, first of all, slaying the victim with a knife, then arranging the sacrifice on top of the wood on the altar, uh, and then finally, lighting the sacrifice, um, and then uh, the smoke would ascend into the heavens. And that was the picture. 
Here is a sacrifice offered to God, and the smoke would rise. Again, we talked about that last week. Incense is very similar in the temple in that as the smoke rises, it, it, it pictures the prayers of the saints going up to, to heaven. So um, this is what he is expected to do to his son. Um, but the location is significant, and that is Moria. Um, every time I read that, I think of where Gimli is from in Lord of the Rings. Um, and no one cares about Lord of the Rings, so we'll just move on. I, th- I think it is called Moria. Um, it's uh, where the uh, Belrog is, the big cave troll. Or there's the cave troll, then there's the Belrog, which is equal to Gandalf, where he says, you shall not pass. Y'all don't care. Um, but... Uh, it's a cool scene in the movie, great scene. Really, it's a compelling scene in the book, especially if you don't know what happens. Anyways, uh, the site of Moria is significant. There's some debate about this, but according to two chronicles, this is where the temple will be built in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is in two chronicles, the chronicler doesn't reference Abraham. It references a story about David. But Moria is the same word used here. I mean, some, some will question that. Um, but... Being that this seems to be what the Bible is telling us, this is now the second time Jerusalem has played a significant role in the story of Abraham. The first was the story of Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. So a priest, a royal priest, comes from Jerusalem to bless Abraham. And Abraham gives a tenth, you may remember. And now you have, so you have a priest coming, royal priest coming from Jerusalem. Now you have Abraham going to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice the site of the sacrifices. So, so I, I do think this is, this is significant for us. Um, and what is amazing is without questioning uh, Abraham, at least in the text, Abraham just says, okay, whatever you say, Bert, and he just goes, just goes. We see no resistance, right? And it isn't that Abraham is afraid to, to, to ask questions. You think about all the times Abraham's like, hey, God, I don't know if you know how a biology works, but my body is, is it, it's more difficult to have children, okay? And I could use some help here. He has no problem with saying, okay, God, maybe you and I need to have a talk. Yet here, he just says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll load up the SUV. Maybe we'll take the camper and we'll make a trip of it. And I'll come back without a, a son, right? It, it, it really, you just read it. It's, it's a very emotionally charged story. Well, starting in verse five, um, he You'll notice that there are two men, um, well, verse 4, on the third day. I took this out of my original notes, but uh, third day is a significant term. Third day happens all the time in the Bible, of course. I do think there's a connection to Jesus, um, but we've done that before. So uh, Abraham lifts his eyes. Eyes are important in Genesis. Uh, and he sees the place from afar. And he says to his young man, there are two men with him. He sends them. We well, didn't send them away. He says, just wait here. And so Abraham and Isaac now go up to the mountain. Notice the language that Abraham has there. We will go. We will worship. We will return. Something's off there, isn't it? We'll go. Yeah. We will worship. That's what the altar's for. We will return. That was a couple options. What do you do with this? One, he could be lying, right? He's like, I'll explain what happened later. <laughs> you know, he could be doing that. Another option that you get in the New Testament was Abraham's faith that no matter what happens, God will not take him from me. 
Consider what the writer of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who, and he who had received the promises was an act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. So if, if, if you read Hebrews 11, it's very clear that the writer of Hebrews reads the story, and I think this was a traditional reading of the story, Abraham believed that if his knife struck his son, God would bring Isaac back from the dead. After all, that is what God did to Sarah's womb. This isn't beyond God here. God says, this is your promised son, and my, my blessings will be through him. Abraham must believe that whatever is about to happen, God will see to it that he keeps his promises. It's an amazing act of faith. I'm not there yet. I don't know about you. Um, I am a, a lifetime member of uh, OE of Little Faith Club, right? And uh, Abraham is, and you can see why Abraham's considered the, a, a man of faith, uh, that he's willing to, to do this. Well, we, we come then, uh, verse 6, Isaac is carrying his own wood, and while, whereas Abraham is carrying the knife and uh, the, the tools to, to make, make, make the fire. And this leads to the question. Isaac isn't a little boy, right? He, 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 he's done these things before. He knows how this works. Um, this, again, is the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac. Isaac knows that, okay, we are going to go make a sacrifice. What we're missing is the sacrifice. Right? That makes sense. So, Dad, you're saying we're going to go make a bird offering? The most important component of that is the lamb. You've got to offer something. So where is the lamb? And Abraham doesn't give him a straight answer. All he says simply is, God will provide. And um, by the way, this is the first reference to a lamb in the Bible, uh, which is, I, I, I think, interesting. You know? um, now, there are lambs before this, obviously Noah's Ark, and we don't know what was offered in the garden. But... Um, um, but this is the first explicit reference to, um, to a lamb. Oh, by the way, John Irwin and Lisa Irwin are watching from Florida. So, hello, hello. Um, um, so Abraham's answer is God will provide. That is the phrase Jehovah Jireh. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. Um, it just means the Lord will provide. By the way, provide means to see. God will see. Now, that's, that's weird English, but, but it's, it's playing on some themes in the story, and it's, it's pretty good Hebrew. Um, for example, you remember that Abraham looked up and saw the mountain, and he began to climb? Go down to verse 13. You'll, you'll see this, this being used again. Abraham lifted up his eyes. So you see, he says, God will see. That is, God will provide, and we'll see God's provision. And in verse 13, after the ram is there, what is he? He sees God's provision. Right there. So it's not good English, but it's really good theology and good Hebrew within the text. So the Lord will see, or the Lord will cause to see. And that's exactly what, what he did. Um, and so, verse 8, they both go up together. The language speaks of friendship, bonding, right? This is a father and, and, and dad time. Right and and uh, by the way, this same language used to describe Elijah and Elisha uh, that they they went up together. Right, they they they, they were together, um, and uh, it's a harmonious trip. Um, a few weeks ago, um, 
it was Amanda and Elijah were home. They were doing the COVID stuff, and me and Vanja were out of all that. So it was just me and her here at the church. And so I said, well, since it's just me and her, wherever she wants to go eat for lunch, I'll treat her out. We'll do whatever it is. And she settled on Subway. Fine. Although Subway is just as expensive as really nice restaurants. So it's, it's all the same. So we went, had Subway, and went home, all that sort of stuff. Well, this past Sunday, um, um, Man and Evangel left right after church to go dress shopping for a wedding we've got coming up in May. Um, that's going to be... Uh, Vanjo is just so excited. And um, um, so it's just me and Elijah. And you, you know my son, right? He, he doesn't want to spend time with anybody, right? <laughs> he just, so I said, all right, son, you go anywhere you want. And he settled, first of all, Wendy's. Right? <laughs> it's just, all right. Uh, and then, and then, so, then I start saying, okay, here's all these other restaurants. Like, okay, Subway. <laughs> Subway. Andrew wants a turkey sandwich. He wants a pizza. I tell you, raising Amanda's kids takes a toll on you. It does. I mean, sometimes it's great, but sometimes, you know. Anyways, um, but, you know, it's it's, what we didn't eat at the restaurant either. No, he wanted to get back and call his buddies. Um, It's so funny. Amanda needed three friends. I needed 300. So Evangel is, is our kid that needs 300 friends, and Elijah is our child that needs three friends. It's, it's just so fascinating the way, the way it works out. That's neither here nor there. So, so here they are. They're, they're, they're marching up uh, to, to Mount Moriah. And starting in verse 9 is um, an interesting thing. Does anyone have King James, verse 9 to 10? Anyone got King Jimmy that would be, be willing to read? Will you read the King James here? And I'll, I'll throw it up here as well. Will you read your King James, verse 9 and 10? You're fine. Good deal. Did so? Did anyone? Does your translation take out all the ands? A bunch of them. So ESV, I think, does. Um, when they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached So yeah, mine takes out a few of them. Maybe yours does too. And for good reason, right? You're wanting the, the English reader to read it in his or her language, right? So, so you don't need all the ands. But King James, I think, is doing us a service in keeping the ands. Now, this is twice in recent weeks I've been praising the King James. So someone needs to tell Frank, who's hanging out with Jesus right now, that I am, I've been praising the King James Bible. So now, let's count the ands, because every and in the King James reflects an and in the Hebrew. Can you guess how many there are up there? There are seven ands. You think that's important? Now, the reason they're there in the Hebrew in the King James is to slow the narrative down. And they came to the place which God had told him of. Yeah. Yeah. They make you stop and, and look yeah. and read another phrase. And so it, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so read it that way. And they came to the place which God had told of him. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and he took the knife, right? It, 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 it forces you to slow down because you need to slow down. Because consider what is about to happen. This guy laid his son onto the altar. He covered him with wood. He raised his arm with the knife and began to swing down to take his own son. Right? The story has to slow down. If this were a movie, the music would really build up. The, 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 the movements would... So you get zooming in of the wood, the, the slowing down of laying him on, on, on the altar. We get no emphasis from, of this story from Isaac's perspective. We don't see if he struggles. We don't see if he's willing. We don't see if he asks questions. None of that. It, the, the, the camera zooms in on Abraham. You can see his hands binding his son. You can see his face as he's, as he's preparing everything. You can see his, his hand as it's lifted up into the sky. We're, we're supposed to slow down and read this. And it's seven hands. By the way, can, can I share something I, I learned today? This has nothing to do with this, but I don't know where else to put this. Uh, I've shared this. You remember Sunday night, we, we looked at the Tower of Babel. And it says that the people came from the east. Um, that east... Is, is found throughout Genesis. I've shown that a thousand times. Adam and Eve are sent out east from the garden. Uh, Cain is sent east, farther away from the garden. He builds the city, uh, the Tower of Babel, from the east. All, there's, there's, there are seven times in Genesis we discover about the east. I mean, the more you read the Bible, the more you'll find the emphasis on seven. Right? And here, here is a hidden one that you'll never think to read and, and, or, or to see. And no one would except we've had 3,000 years of reading this story. <laughs> Someone was bound to catch this. But it's right there. The story has slowed down. But nevertheless, uh, verse 13 to 14 is the uh, provision. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord intercedes. I believe that's the pre-incarnate Jesus. We've spent time on that before. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes, right? The Lord provided. And looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham took the ram, offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So again, just as God preserved Ishmael, God preserves Isaac. Genesis 21 and 22 put together. Both are an act of grace. The son of a slave woman, the son of promise. It's grace to both. If only I could think of an application there. Um, Rams have already been referenced in Genesis and used for sacrifice, Genesis 15. Um, you remember, this is where uh, God renews his covenant with, a with Abraham by taking the animals, um, severing them in half, and putting each half on poles. Right? It's an ancient custom. And you remember that Abraham is put to sleep, and that parallels Adam. Adam is put to sleep, and then he's given the covenant of marriage. Abraham is put to sleep, and he's given the covenant of promise. Right, so so that, that mirrors the story of Adam. But you see a ram being offered there, and that is what is provided uh, here for us. And so then what you're going to get in verses 15 to 19 is God renewing his covenant. And there's nothing new here. Everything we've seen uh, we, we've, uh, before shows up here. Notice verse 17, God says, I will bless you. Well, that mirrors the original uh, promise, right? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. 
right? And those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse, I will curse. Uh, verse 17, I will surely multiply your offspring. Chapter 16, the angel of the Lord also said uh, to Sarah, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for a multitude, right? Uh, angel of the Lord saying that here as well. You will count them as the stars. Well, Genesis 15, he brings uh, Abraham out, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to enable number them, so shall your seed be, your offspring be. Um, you will possess the gate, Genesis 15. Again, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Oh, that's, a, that's a wrong. Oh yeah, possess the gate. Uh, later in uh, 25 that we just saw, that language, I think it's 25, that language of possessing the gate is used uh, for, for Isaac, I think. Don't quote me on that. So the point here is that God renews his covenant. He has passed the test. Now, think about a test. Abraham passed the test. So he climbs to a mountain. There is an altar representing the presence of God, worship. So God and man coming together. And a test is there. And it is in a thicket, which is part of a plant or a tree, right? There the provision is made. So in, in many ways, this is Abraham's moment in the garden. Will he choose the way of the Lord, here offering his son as a sacrifice, or the way of, of a man-centered wisdom? Unlike Adam, he chooses the will and the word of God. And out of that comes a blessing that I will multiply you and I will bless the nations through you. Not only that, but God reaffirms the covenant um, with stronger language. So it isn't just, let me repeat everything I said before. He, he repeats it with stronger emphasis. So let, let me, uh, he does this two ways. One, he does it by swearing by himself. Now, now that's odd language to us. That's because we're not at the top of the food chain, okay? Um, uh, we would swear, like in a court of law, you know, to God, right? We take an oath, you know, hand on the Bible, you know, all that sort of stuff. Why? Because we understand the divine being is above us. Well, using that anthropomorphic language, what would God swear by? He's above everything. So the only thing he can swear by is himself. And you'll find this throughout the Bible. I took a few references out, but the big one is Hebrews 6. When God made a promise to Abraham, man, we should read that story, right? Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Similarly in Isaiah, by myself I have sworn, right, by my mouth, so on and so forth. Uh, Jeremiah 22, if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, this house shall become a desolation. <laughs> right? I, I think my parents used to say things like that to, to us, right? If y'all don't act straight, you know, this is what's going to happen. Um, actually, mom and dad would tell us, I, I told you, if, if we had to call mom and dad uh, while sis was babysitting us, they would holler, I mean, really, it would scare us to death, and then tell us what's awaiting us when they get home from work. And your parents, I know your parents did this to you, right? And so we knew what was coming. I don't know if I've told the story of my brother and I when mom and dad, so mom would say, when I get home, you're getting a whooping. Then call dad, who then would call us and say, when I get home, you're getting a whooping. So we would get a double whammy of whoopings. For any Gen Zers here, that, that does not mean you get one of them whoops you because they talk this through. No, the one that gets home first, the first thing he did was whoop us and then never told mom that he had already whooped us. So then we had to get whooping again, right? We knew this, this is the way the world works. And so my brother and I would uh, uh, wear extra 
garments, <laughs> right? And that worked like one time. And uh, I mean, they could tell what we had done. And we practically should have just wrapped a pillow on our rear ends, right? I mean, it was so obvious what we had done. Um, but nevertheless, I don't know how we got on that. Um, so Amos 6, the Lord had sworn by himself, I abhor the pride of Jacob, so on and so forth. So, so he swears by himself, the highest uh, he, he can go. The other is known as the strong infinitive absolutes. Verse 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you and don't call me surely, right? It, it, it adds the, the infinitive there to, to, to emphasize this will happen. And of course, the rest of the story is the unfolding of that drama. Okay, verse 18 is, is significant here. In your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. That, of course, is repeating Genesis 12. Because you have obeyed my voice. Now, that's significant. Because in the Bible, the way of wisdom is listening and obeying the voice of God over the voice of man. For example, in Genesis 3, whose voice did Adam listen to? You listen to the voice of your wife, and you ate the fruit. And that's repeated in Genesis 3, 10. Uh, yeah? Yeah, but God told Abraham to listen to the voice of his wife, Hagar. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Because yeah. you listen to the voice of your wife, which means... The taking of Hagar in that story, we talked about it before. That story is a, is a repeat of the garden story. Sarah takes of Hagar, takes her, and gives it to Adam or Abraham, and he must choose. He listens to the voice of the serpent to his wife. He takes, he sees that she is beautiful. He takes that which is desirable for himself. Right? It's the same story. Um, so, yeah, and you can look at chapter 4. Lamech um, says, hear my voice. Listen to what I have to say to his wives. So what sets Abraham apart is the only voice he listens to is God's. And I think that's why you don't see the drama of was Isaac resisting? Did Abraham ask questions? No, no the story is... Abraham choose the way of the Lord even when it didn't make any sense. He chose obedience over everything else. That's faith. That is faith. So what is the point of the story? Well, on the one hand, we, we, we have to be honest and say this is a, a really an appalling story. And so when you read uh, how people treat this text, Jews and Christians alike over the, the centuries, um, we've, we've tried to water it down. We've tried to reinterpret it, uh, postmodern theologians in particular. Um, my thesis was on a postmodern liberal uh, movement. And what they tried to do with this story was just weird um, because they, they, couldn't, they couldn't understand why would God ask Abraham to offer his son, right? And, and we're supposed to feel that way. As beautiful as some of the text is, it's, at the end of the day, it's about God requiring Abraham to kill his boy. I don't love God that much, right? Yeah, Don. Hang in there. That's where we're going. 
After seven years, y'all don't know, especially when we're in the Old Testament, we will find Jesus somewhere, right? And that's where this story leads. It leads to the cross. Well, uh, there are a few strange things in that regard. Number one, the location is Moria, which is the location of the temple. In verse 7 and 8, he asked, Isaac asks, where will the lamb be? And Abraham says, God will provide. But there's a problem with that. God didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram. The Hebrew is, is not that it could either be lamb or ram. No, it's just two very different words in Hebrew and, and, and English. A lamb was to be provided, but no lamb was provided. Now, a lamb will be provided later through the temple sacrifices. Lambs are provided. But the question is, where is the lamb singular? There must be a lamb. And so we are to see, ultimately, this is fulfilled in Christ, who is sent outside Jerusalem. He is expelled outside of the temple. And in John's gospel, what he does is while Christ is being sacrificed at Golgotha, he details that in the temple, the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And so many will be slaughtered that blood would run through the streets of Jerusalem. And yet the lamb of God that was promised to be provided for, the one that we could see from a distance, he was right there. And John wants to draw us to that conclusion. Not, not the system but the Savior, the Lamb. God did provide for us a Lamb. Now, none of this should, should, should be strange, right? Because this is a picture of the cross, uh, of, a picture of, of the gospel. Christ is the Son offered by the Father, which means Jesus is a true and better Isaac. Let me give you five, five ways from the story, Jesus is a true and better Isaac. Number one, both had miraculous births. You remember, go back to the story of Luke, right? Uh, uh, Jesus is born of a virgin, right? But, but in, in, in parallel to Jesus is John the Baptist, which is part of what we'll look at this Christmas. And we think, okay, one wound was closed. The other wound was of a virgin. Yes, but here's biology for you. They were both closed. Virgins can no more conceive as someone of, of Elizabeth's age. And the birth of John the Baptist mirrors, parallels that of Isaac. This is on purpose. So the being born of a virgin is a retelling of the story of being born uh, uh, like Elizabeth and, and Sarah. So, so, so both are miraculous births, and they are sons of promise, right? Uh, secondly, both travel three days to the place of sacrifice. Now, three days is so important. Thirdly, both were escorted by two men to the place of execution. So in the story of Isaac in Genesis 22, you have Abraham's servants. And then Abraham says, no, this is where you stop. It's just me and the boy from here on out. And what is it that, that, that you get in the story of Jesus? There are two right next to him. He's escorted by two. Both carry their own wood. Isn't that a striking detail in the story? Why give us that information? Does it matter who carried the wood? See, that's the, no, no, it's just in terms of the story, it's just unnecessary detail. Unless we are to see at the center of the story, a lamb was provided who, like Isaac, had to carry his own wood. Remember, in Hebrew, wood and tree are the same word. So when Jesus dies upon the tree, he's carrying his, 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 his wood. He's carrying his own source of execution. 
Fifthly, both willingly submitted themselves to the will of the Father. From, from in the story, Isaac is never portrayed as resisting. He simply obeys the will of his father. Okay, Dad, if you say the Lord will provide the sacrifice, I will lay where you want me to lay. I will go where you, want, where you send me, and I will do what you ask of me. Both go willingly the way of God. And let's not miss the fact that both were loved by their fathers. In fact, notice in verse 2 and 12, there's a repetitive emphasis on Isaac as Abraham's only son whom he loves. And then in verse 3, 6, 7, 9, 10, and 13, the phrase, my son, is repeated. My son, his son. Again, what you have is the beloved son of the father being offered. Thus, you get with Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So clearly, I think Jesus is a true and better Isaac. He is the one whom is promised, Jehovah Jireh. You will see God's provision. And it is Jesus who says, it is not my will, but yours be done. And he carries the cross to Golgotha. The difference is, Isaac, the son of promise, made himself an offering, but was reserved. Jesus offered himself as an offering, and his life was taken. But his life was taken up again, conquering death forever and ever. The big difference is, in Genesis 22, there is intervention. And who is it that intervenes? It's the angel of the Lord, who I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus. He enters the story and says, no, don't lay a hand on the boy. For now, here's a provision. But the day will come when I will be the one struck. Outside of Jerusalem, near the temple, I will carry my wood, doing the will of the Father. Yeah, Don? What was that goat you saw back in the Oh, you're talking about the, exp- uh, the expiation propitiation goat. Yeah, so that's just another sacrifice. But was that the reason Christ was taken outside the city besides the fact that they rejected him? Yeah, yeah, probably. So the, what he's talking about is on the Day of Atonement, Le- Leviticus 16, 17, something like that, there's, there's all these sacrifices. And one of the central ones is there's two goats. Uh, there's the goat of propitiation. And then there's the scapegoat, sometimes called the goat of expiation. So what those words mean is one is appeasement, propitiation, to appease the wrath of God. And so what, what you'll have is, is that um, that goat will be sacrificed. And as a result of sacrificing that, the priest becomes very bloody. He gets blood all over his hands and his clothes and all that. And remember, he's wearing clean, pure clothes. Now he's covered in blood. So he then takes his bloody hand. So now the wrath of God has been satisfied due to the substitute of this goat. He then takes it, his hands, and lays it on the other goats. And there it represents the sins that, that cause the wrath of God are now laid onto this other goat who then is sent outside the camp. And um, it gets more funky after that, but that's the basic point. And so the idea is sin has left the camp never to return. And so what you get in Jesus is the wrath of God is demonstrated in the darkness at noon. And, and Jesus is, is clearly sees it as that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first line of Psalm 22, which is a psalm of, of messianic judgment, right? That, that the nations have come against the, the Messiah, 
And, and so we see this as an act of judgment, propitiation. Christ is appeasing the wrath of God. But then he is taken outside the camp. Right? And, and the writer of Hebrews makes a big deal of this, that Jesus went outside the camp. And what goes outside the camp? That is where garbage and lepers and sin is sent. And that's where Jesus was sent, outside the camp. There he died as our scapegoats. But here's, here's where it's really good. Where is Jesus buried? In a garden. And it's Sunday morning. This is where you and I disagree. But it's Sunday morning, the first day of creation, when light dawn, the tomb is empty. It's, it's almost like God wrote the Bible, right? I mean, it's, it's just so, so good. Um, so let me, let me conclude with, with one single verse just to summarize it all. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, but he sent his son, a true and better Isaac, to be our propitiatory sacrifice and our expiatory sacrifice. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a difficult text to look at. But I think it's clearly pointing us to Jesus. Clearly pointing us to Jesus. Anything you, have, you guys have in, in your, as you're reading through 21, 22 today, you want to throw out there? All right, well, I think we have two more weeks of Genesis for eight for eight months. We will be done with Genesis forever and ever. Uh, well, not forever and ever, but at least for the rest of the year. Um, but um, I can't wait till we get to Joseph. I'm just going to warn you now. So in two weeks, it's going to be a lot of